Well, good morning, Watermark. How are we doing today? Hey, it's, uh, it's good to see you. If this is your first time here, welcome. Uh, my name is Timothy Atik. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and it's a joy to get to be with you. I want to start just by putting a thought in your mind. I want you to think about this. Imagine that that door right there at the back opened and in walked Jesus Christ. Just imagine if today, this Sunday... Jesus Christ were to walk through that door, yeah, that'd be amazing. We're already applauding. That's great. I haven't even made my point yet, but that's good. I like it. Good energy, people. Keep it up. I want you to imagine if he walked through that door, we're going to give him a microphone because he's Jesus and he deserves it. I don't need it if he's here. Uh, Just imagine this. What if Jesus walked in the room, we gave him a microphone, and he said this. What if he said, hey, mark the calendar, one year from today, I'm coming back. Like, just imagine if he were to say, mark the calendar, April 2nd, 2024, you can count on it, 365 days from now, 8,760 hours from this moment, I'm coming back. What do you think you would do? What would change? Like, what would you start doing? What would you stop doing? What would rise to the top of your priority list? What would inevitably become inconsequential to you? What would change? I wonder if for some of us, everything would change. Like, I wonder if some, you would finally go all in with Jesus, or you'd finally reconcile that broken relationship, or you would finally begin to take steps towards freedom from sin, or you would share your faith with that person who does not know the Lord. I would imagine that for many of us, so much would change. But if you look at the way that we live now, we, we live as if Jesus is coming back someday, but it definitely won't be today. And so we live with the assumption he is coming back, but it's going to be someday far away. But it certainly won't be today. Here's the reality. We have no clue when Jesus is coming back. The scriptures are clear that we don't know the time or the hour. And yet as we step back into the book of 1 Peter today, Peter's message to us is going to be live like the end is near. That's what his point is. Live as if Jesus is coming back soon. Because when you live like the end is near, it changes things. I mean, if you're a parent, isn't that your message to your kids right now? Like spring break has passed, spring fever has set in. So what's your message? Hey, summer is coming. Hang on. You are going to make it. I've already had those conversations with my kids. Like summer will be here before you know it. What is my message? The the end is near. Live with the end in mind. That's Peter's message to us today. We want to be a people here at Watermark that live with urgency, that live with a sense that Jesus is coming back someday, but it might not be a day far away. It could be today. And so we want to live with the end in mind. We want to live as if the end is near. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. This isn't a message about getting out your charts and timelines and analyzing everything going on in the world. It's not a message about going into hibernation or getting your 
apocalypse kit together. That's not what this message is about. This is a message about when Jesus comes back, you being found faithful. So listen to what Peter says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Listen to verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another with grum without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we look at the text, we're going to observe five ways to live as if the end is near. The first is this, treasure God's will like the end is near. Like if there is some chance that Jesus is coming back in the next year, treasure his will. Treasure God's will like the end is near. What did, what did Peter say? Look again at the first two verses. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And then verse two, he says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for what? For the will of God. That's why I'm telling you to treasure God's will. You have to understand, Peter is writing to a bunch of Christians who are being canceled in their culture because they're no longer willing to do what everyone else in society is doing. They're no longer going to the parties. They're no longer mixing a drink with all sorts of sexually deviant behavior. And because of it, they are getting canceled. And Peter is saying, look, guys, Jesus Christ is your example. When Jesus Christ stepped onto earth, what was he bent on? Jesus Christ was bent on accomplishing the will of the Father. That's why we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he is arrested or betrayed and arrested, what is he praying? Luke twenty-two forty-two. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus Christ came to accomplish the will of the Father. What was the Father's will? Well, Isaiah 53 tells us that it was the will of God to crush the Son. So Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, when he went to the cross, he was, he was enduring the wrath of God. 
He was making the impossible possible. He was making a way when there was no way for sinful, unrighteous, unholy, imperfect people such as you and me to be made right and be made into people who will spend all of eternity with a perfect, sinless, holy, righteous God. That is what Jesus was accomplishing. He was accomplishing the will of the Father, but it came through suffering. So Peter's point to his friends is this, arm yourselves, that's the wording he uses, he says arm yourself, that's, that's military terminology, he's saying hey, go to battle, arm yourselves, make a decision, draw a line in the sand, even if it's going to mean suffering, even if people are going to look at you and cancel you for not doing what they do, make a decision that you will live Today and the rest of your life, you will live a not my will, but your will be done life. That's the encouragement. You want to live like the end is near? Then begin to resolve every day. Draw a line in the sand and just say, God, today will be a not my will, but your will be done day. And I think Peter's wording in verse 3 is really important. Because he says this, he says, for the time that is past suffices. For the time that is past, it suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. What's his point? He's saying, hey, you've given it enough time. It's been more than enough time that you have lived according to the will of the world. Put that behind you. Make a decision. Put sin to death. Let's no longer do the one foot in the world, one foot in with God. Let's not straddle the fence. Let's not live in the gray areas. Let's go all in with Jesus. That's Peter's point. It's been long enough. One day outside of the will of God is one day too long. So he's saying make Make a decision. Put sin to death because you can't be intimate with sin and intimate with Jesus at the same time. You can't run towards sin and run towards Jesus because they go in opposite directions. So A.W. Tozier, pastor and author in the early to mid-1900s, he said this. He said, the first step for any Christian who is seeking spiritual power is to accept his unique position as a son of heaven temporarily detained on the earth and to begin to live as becometh a saint. He's saying, look, you, you have to resolve in your mind that this isn't your home. You belong to heaven, but you're detained here for a period of time. And so spend your days living in not my will, but your will be done. Do what is fitting for a saint. Let me give you a picture of what I'm talking about. Several years ago, uh, we lived in Austin. I was a student pastor there. And one of my closest friends, his name's Jordan, he had a golden retriever named Boone that he had, he had basically programmed Boone to be a robot. Like this was the most well-behaved dog that I had ever met in my life. And I asked Jordan to bring Boone to church to the high school ministry that I was leading. And here's what I asked Jordan. I said, 
There was a room of about maybe 150 high school students. I said, Jordan, do you think that you could put Boone at the back of the room, tell him to stay, and then you go up on stage and tell him to come to you? But the catch is this. I am going to tell all 150 high school students to call for Boone and to try and entice Boone to come to them. The only rule will be that they can't grab Boone or touch him. It's like, do you think he'll do it? Jordan's like, yeah, I think he'll do it. I'll be like, we'll see about that. (laughs) And so Jordan takes Boone to the back of the room. He's like, Boone, stay. And the fact that the dog just sat there, if you ever met the dog we used to have, you'd know T.A. can't do that. But anyway, Jordan goes up on stage and I give the cue to all 150 high school students. I said, okay, go. And so 150 high school students are like, come here, Boone, oozy poozy, come here, come here, come here, Boone. Like people's voices go crazy when they're talking to animals. Who are we? But they're just, come here, Boone, come here, Boone. And Boone's just sitting there looking at Jordan and then Jordan goes, Boone, come. And this is what Boone does. I kid you not. Boone gets down and starts creeping towards Jordan down the aisle as as Boone passes every single high school student going, come here, Boone. He's just like creeping towards Jordan because why? He has set his mind to accomplishing the will of his master. And what does Peter say happens when you do that? He says that you have ceased from sin. Does that mean that you live a perfect life? No, it just means that when you're committed to suffering in this world, meaning you're willing to be ostracized for not doing what the rest of the world is doing, man, you have made a commitment to God that is far stronger to any commitment you could ever make to sin. And the result is a holy life. So if you want to live like the end is near, then first begin to treasure God's will. Live a not my will, but your will be done life. Number two, endure opposition like the end is near. Endure opposition like the end is near. Here's the reality. When you treasure God's will and you begin to put sin to death, people will not understand. They won't. People will not understand why you refuse to go to an adult club when you're, on, when you're traveling for business. People will not understand why you believe that marriage is for one man and one woman. People will not understand why you would choose to go to a recovery ministry every Monday night to deal with things like anger or food or pornography. Won't understand it. People won't understand why you won't over-promise to potential clients just to win their business. People won't understand why you won't make promises that you can't keep in order to get what you need. People won't understand why you refuse to gossip about other people. Peter speaks to that in verse 4. Look at what he says. He says, with respect to this, with respect to what? With respect to not engaging in the sinful activity of the rest of the world, with respect to this, they, it's an unbelieving world, they're surprised 
when you don't join them. That word surprised, it means to think it's strange. That's interesting. It's like people will think you are strange when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. To malign, it means to heap abuse on a person. So Peter is just speaking into these readers' lives because they were wildly misunderstood. They were wildly misunderstood. Tacitus, who was an unbelieving Roman historian and politician, here's how he described Christians. Remember, this is an unbelieving Roman politician and historian. He described Christians as having a hatred of the human race. Why? Because Christians were unwilling to do what the rest of humanity was doing. What was the rest of humanity doing? They were giving themselves to sensuality. They were getting drunk. They were, they were engaging in all, sexu- in all types of deviant sexual behavior. Not only that, there was massive amounts of idolatry. They would, they would deify the emperor in revering the the emperor as a deity at festivals, that was commonplace, and when Christians wouldn't do that, Tacitus looks at that and said, you have a hatred for the world. They're misunderstood. You will be misunderstood if you choose to go all in with Jesus. But Peter speaks to it in verse 5. Like, just in case you're tempted to go back to the way things were before Christ, like if you're tempted to have one foot in the world and one foot in with with Jesus, Peter says, verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. What's his point? Peter is saying, hey, to you Christians, you might feel like you're on the outside of society because you're being ostracized for your faith. But just remember that the people who feel like they're on the inside of society now will one day stand before Jesus and they will have to give an account to Jesus. And the text says that he's ready. He's ready to judge the living and the dead. And it just continues to to point us towards that thought of, hey, that the end is near. We don't know what it is. We don't know when it is. But it is good and right to live Like a day is coming where those who do not Jesus will stand in God's courtroom and have to give an account. That's judicial terminology. The end is near. And when they do stand before Jesus, when they see Jesus for who he truly is, here's what we have to remember as Christians. The lives that we live that unbelievers looked at as strange in that moment will seem like the sanest things in the world. Our lives will look like the sanest thing to an unbeliever who during their time on earth thought that our activity was strange. When they see Jesus Christ, it will make perfect sense. And short-term gratification will one day lead to eternal shame and regret. So it's not worth it. Stay strong. Endure opposition when people don't understand why you do the things you do. Verse 6, Peter goes on and says, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now that's an interesting thing to say. How is the gospel preached to dead people? Well, what Peter is referring to is he's referring 
to Christians who had believed the gospel but had died. The reason he's speaking to this is because unbelievers would look at the fact that Christians had died and say, see, that's why there's no benefit to Christianity. Because Christians die just like everyone else. They experience judgment just like everyone else because that clearly if they weren't experiencing judgment, then they wouldn't die. And Peter's point is this. Though judged in the flesh the way people are, they, will, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And so Peter's point is this. He's just saying, guys, take heart. Endure opposition. Don't lose hope. Make a decision. Draw a line in the sand. Set your gaze on Jesus. Live according to his will. Why? Because we all will die one day, but for those who know Jesus, death is the beginning of the life we have been longing for. Death is the the gateway to paradise. It's the doorway to eternal life with God, beholding his glory and experiencing fullness of joy in his presence. So let me explain it like this. When heaven is waiting, life on earth is a taste of hell. But when hell is waiting, life on earth is a taste of heaven. As believers, we can endure a taste of hell knowing that we will feast for all of eternity on the beauty and the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ. But if hell is waiting, then you have to squeeze every drop of heaven you can during this life on earth because this is the best it's going to get. And so if you don't know Jesus, the invitation today is to come to him, to taste and see that he is good, to surrender your life to him, to turn from your life of sin, to turn towards him, to experience complete forgiveness and to walk in newness of life. And if you do already know him, the message to you is endure, endure. Because when death comes, we will all experience a monumental trade-up. Number three, pray like the end is near. Pray like the end is near. Verse seven, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. There it is. There's our message. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, so how do we live in light of the end? He says, be self-controlled, sober-minded. This is interesting. For the sake of your prayers. The picture here is of someone who's intoxicated. Because when you're intoxicated, you, you can't make sense of reality. Like your understanding of reality is distorted. You can't see clearly and you can't think clearly. And so Peter's point is, hey, sober up up here. Sober up. See reality clearly. The the end is near. Jesus will come back. He will come back. And because he will come back, live with crystal clarity. Allow that reality that Jesus will come back to shape what you do. If you know that Jesus is coming back soon, you know what you do? You pray. You pray. 
Um, a couple weeks ago, someone asked this question, which I thought was a convicting question. I'm going to ask you two questions right now. The first one is this. If somehow God were to send you a notification right now, if he were to send you a text or somehow just let you know, hey, I've decided to answer every prayer that you prayed over the last week, what would change? Like, what would be impacted? That might be a convicting question. It's a clarifying question at best. Because what it does is it just, it, it helps you see what priority prayer plays in your life. If, if God were to say, hey, every prayer you prayed last week, I'm going to answer it. Would there be any prayers to answer? And if there were, are, are they the prayers that now that you have clarity are they the prayers that you really wanted to be praying? It just helps you understand what role prayer plays in your life. But the question that I really want you to think about is this. If you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was coming back in a year, what prayers would you pray? Because I think if we knew Jesus was coming back in 8,760 hours, I think that prayer would become our top priority because we would just want to be completely synced up with his heart. And we would beg God for things. So just think about that real quick. Even take a moment and write it down. Like, I want to encourage you to do that real quick. What is one prayer that you would pray every day if you knew Jesus was coming back? Write it down real quick. What would it be? And if that's what you would pray, why not pray it every day? Because we don't know when Jesus is coming back. I know for me, here's what I wrote down. I said, I would beg God every day to save specific friends and family members. I would beg God to reveal himself to the unreached people groups in the world who have yet to hear the name of Jesus. I would beg God every day for revival in our city and to move through every church and proclaim the gospel. I said, I would beg God to hold me close, to destroy any idols in my heart that would seem horrific in his presence. I would beg him to keep sin far from me and to strip away any desires, values, or priorities that would seem so out of place in heaven. You might hear that and be like, you're a pastor. You don't pray those things already? And I would say, I do. I just, I don't pray them with the, the urgency that I would if I knew Jesus was coming back. And I don't pray them with the, with the daily urgency. I don't pray them with the, consistency that I would if I knew Jesus was coming back. And that's convicting. Because I'm like, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. I'm living like Jesus is coming back someday, but it certainly won't be this day. And so I just encourage you, what, what would you pray? Why don't you start praying it? Martin Luther says this. He says, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes... In the business of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. That's our business. Like, that's what we do. Christians pray. Christians pray. That is our work. If you want to know what the work of a Christian is, pray. Pray like the end is near. Number four, love like the end is near. Peter says in verse 8, 
He says, above all. So we should probably listen up because Peter's like, hey, so in case you're prioritizing things as I'm writing to you, above all. So just move this one to the top of your list. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, he's circling, highlighting, underlining, asterisking, This is what comes above everything else. Love one another earnestly. But he he clarifies what type of love he's talking about. He says, love one another earnestly since love, the love he's talking about is a love that covers over a multitude of sins. So the love that he's talking about is a love that endures wrongs. It's a love that doesn't give up when you're sinned against or when you're wronged. It's a love that can move right through that. It can forgive. It can pursue reconciliation. So love like the end is near. Here's what I want to ask you to do. You don't have to, but I want to invite you to to close your eyes because I want you to picture something. So closing your eyes might be the most helpful way to do that. Here's what I want you to picture. I want you to picture standing in heaven before the throne of God, seeing God in all his glory. And you're surrounded by a countless number of people who are all worshiping God before his throne. And so just imagine this. Imagine experiencing fullness of joy Your soul is satisfied in the presence of God like it never has before. And you look to your right or your left and there are those friends and family members who know Jesus and they're worshiping God just like you are. So there's the enjoyment of being together, but your greatest satisfaction is beholding the glory of God together. Now here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine looking around and seeing somebody and realizing not everything is right between that person and me. Like imagine feeling this abrupt halt to your worship, this awkwardness inside of you like there was unresolved tension, like y'all had shut each other out of your lives. Imagine how out of place that tension, that awkwardness would feel between you and a brother or sister in Christ as you stand before the throne of God. God would never allow that into his presence. So I encourage you, open your eyes. Like if there's, if there's anyone that comes to mind, if there's anyone in your life that you will struggle to stand next to and worship Jesus for all of eternity because there's unresolved conflict, deal with it now. Love like the end is near. Don't wait for heaven to resolve something between you and another brother or sister in Christ. Paul puts it this way in Romans 12, 18. He says, if possible. That implies that there are times where it's not possible. If possible, so far as it depends on you, meaning you do everything in your power, you can't control how the other person responds. You can only control what you do. As far as it depends on you, live 
peaceably with all. Love like the end is near. And then finally, serve the church like the end is near. Serve the church like the end is near. Look at what Peter says, verse 9. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. See, in that time, the church met in homes. Those sharing the gospel would travel and stay in different Christians' homes. He's saying, hey, don't, don't, don't get worn out on hosting people. Don't get worn out on serving the church by hosting the church in your home. Do it without grumbling. Verse 10. He says this, as each has received a gift. What is he talking about here when he says that every Christian has received a gift? He's talking about the concept of spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is a gift that God gives you when you trust in him. We're not talking about natural gifts or natural talents. We are actually talking about supernatural gifts or talents. The reason I say they're supernatural is because you weren't born with them and they're not something that you just naturally developed. They became possible only when you put your trust in Jesus because when you put your trust in Jesus, Jesus put his spirit inside of you. So God now lives in you by the presence of his spirit and the spirit of God has given every single Christian at least one spiritual gift. So he says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So this is clarifying because the Spirit of God has given you a gift, but that gift is not for you to be used for you. That gift was given to you to serve others. So Peter's encouragement is this, as good stewards of God's varied grace. So you're a steward It's not yours. You don't own the gift. You steward the gift. God cares what you do with the gift he's given you. You have a responsibility to fulfill. So Peter says in verse 11, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. So Peter says there's some gifts that involve speaking. Speak as if you're speaking the words of God. And whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Here's Peter's point. His point is this, inside of you right now is a gift that has been given to build up and serve the church. So do not 2% the church and do not 2% your gift. You're like, what are you talking about? Well, I'm an Aggie. Went to Texas A&M University and we have terminology at A&M where we refer to Aggies who are not all in as Aggies as 2%ing. So if you never go to the football games or you do go to the games but you sit down instead of standing for the whole game or if you leave early instead of seeing it all the way through, do you know what you are? Aggies, help me out. You are a two percenter. You don't buy the ring. You don't know the yells. You don't, if you don't go all in, you're a two percenter. If you don't bleed maroon, which I guess we all do, but if you don't you don't wear maroon, if you don't strongly consider maroon when you're choosing your next car, like you, you're a two percenter. And Peter's point is this, hey, now is not the time to two percent the church. Like this isn't some place that you just check in and out of maybe once or twice a month. Like this is a place to invest 
God cares deeply about what we do when we come together. And he has given you a gift that this body needs. And God has given you a stewardship and you have a responsibility to identify what your gift is. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, go to watermark.org backslash spiritual gifts and we will help you identify it. But go identify your gift and then figure out how to use your gift to the fullest extent. That's why we want our members here at Watermark to serve, not so you can check a box. It's so that you can steward what God has given you. And here's the ultimate goal. Look at how Peter finishes. He says, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That is why Watermark Community Church exists. It exists for the glory of God through Jesus Christ. It does not exist for us to feel really great about ourselves. It doesn't exist for people to be like, hey, have you been to Watermark Community Church? I really like their music. And have you seen their worship center? And man, I really like how they do this, this, or that. No, Watermark exists for people to leave here and say, have you met Jesus Christ? Because there is no one like him. Come and behold the beauty of Jesus Christ. That's why every Sunday morning exists, is so that we can put Jesus Christ on display and you can see him and surrender fully to life with him. Peter closes by saying, to him belong glory. I love this. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's who belongs glory. All of the praise belongs to Jesus. To him belongs dominion, which means he has the right to rule. That's our hope here at Watermark, is that today Jesus Christ would get all the praise and Jesus Christ would rule and reign in this place. Here's here's the concerning thing. The concerning thing is that many of you are going to leave here and get in the car, and you know a question you're going to ask your spouse or the person you came with? What'd you think? That's a consumeristic question. What'd you think? What's, what are you implying? Hey, did you get anything out of today? Did you like the music? Did you like the message? That's the wrong question to be asking. The right question for you to ask of yourself is did Jesus get the glory in dominion in my life today? When I came to church, did Jesus get all the praise? Did Jesus Christ rule and reign in my heart as I worshiped today? And then you should ask the question of the church collectively. Did Jesus Christ get the praise? Did Jesus Christ rule and reign at Watermark Community Church today? That is why we exist. Now is not the time for us to 2% the church. Serve the church as if the end is near. Treasure God's will, endure opposition, pray, love, serve the church like the end is near. Here's the reality. The reality is that we don't have the luxury of Jesus Christ walking through those doors and saying, hey, mark the calendar, April 2nd, 2024, I am coming back. He is coming back one day. 
But as I've already said, our tendency is to believe he's coming back one day and that day is a long way away. But someday, it's going to become today. Some generation is going to be wrong. Every generation has said one day he's coming back, but some generation has to be wrong. And ultimately, a day is coming where it will be a true statement. Today is the day that Christ is coming back. May we not be the generation that is wrong. May we live today and every day as if the end is near. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I just want you to hear the words of Augustine. He said this, they then who are destined to die need not be careful to inquire what death they are to die but into what place death will usher them. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you come to a place where you have realized that when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, he was being punished for all of your sins, and when he rose from the dead, it was a declaration that his payment for your sins was sufficient. So that when you turn from your sin, and you turn to Jesus Christ in faith, You are made right with God now and for all of eternity. If you don't know him, the invitation to you now is to trust in him, to know him. Don't wait for one day to figure it out. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the best day to begin walking with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that a day is coming where you will come back. And we don't know the day or the time. We don't know the hour of that day, but I pray that we would live like it'll be soon. Even if it's hundreds of years from today, I pray that we would live like it's soon. May there be an urgency in our bones to just draw a line in the sand, to go all in with you, to treasure your will above any other will. God, would you help us to endure opposition when people don't understand the lives we live? I pray that we would pray. Teach us how to pray, Lord God. Help us to love one another. If there's any broken relationships between brothers or sisters in Christ in this room, pray that healing would come today, Lord God. And I pray that we would be all in with the church. I pray that Watermark would be a place where people identify their God-given gifts and use them to build up their body. Guard us from making church about us. Our gifting in this church is about your glory and your dominion, God. So you, Jesus, would you rule and reign in our hearts and minds today and every day. We need you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.